Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 21, Exodus chapter 21. Open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. I want you to take a look at the first ten words of this chapter. Exodus begins, Exodus 21 begins with these simple and straightforward words from Jehovah. It says, now these are the rulings you are to present to them. Well, you're going to find out maybe it's not so simple after all. Exodus 21 is one of those chapters that has to be looked at very carefully because there's some subtle ideas and notions that are presented here that can greatly affect everything that comes after it. Therefore, before we even read it, so you can put your Bibles down. We're going to spend this entire lesson simply discussing what to be looking for in this one chapter. Now, the subtleties begin with the very first word of chapter 21. In the original Hebrew, the word is fele, fele, which most literally means and these are. And these are. The key word being and. Now, why is it important to replace that one little word now with the word and, or to add the word and back into some versions where it's missing altogether, such as in the complete Jewish Bible? Because as Rabbi Ishmael says in the Makilta, the term vele is always a connecting term in Hebrew. That is, it indicates that what is about to be said is but a continuation of what has just been said. Okay? The context for what is about to be spoken has been set in what came just before the word vele. Now, we've talked about this before, and I'm not going to repeat it except to remind you right, that the Scriptures, Old Testament, and New were not written in chapter and verse interruptions and markings. Okay? It was far into the future after the Bible was written. In fact, in the 13th century A.D., when the Archbishop of Canterbury, okay, Stephen Langton, saw the advantage of breaking the Bible up into bite-sized chunks right, for easier study. And for all practical, practical purposes, it is his system of chapters and verses that we are using today. About 200 years after that, a rabbi did something similar, but only, of course, for the Old Testament, because he felt that Bishop Langton's chapter and verse marks ruined the flow of the Hebrew. And Jews well knew that. Therefore, depending on the version of Bible that you have, you might have some Old Testament chapters longer or shorter than other versions, and some verses not numbered the same as in other versions. And that's why. Okay. The point is that chapter and verse marks are artificial and arbitrary. Okay. The case before us is the perfect example of this. We have just concluded studying the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. And now we get this statement to begin chapter 21 that these are the rulings you are about to present to them. It has been the common Gentile Christian premise that because of those beginning words of chapter 21, that what exists in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, is therefore completely disconnected from what 
begins in chapter 21, the laws and rulings that form the Jewish law. And the context of chapter uh, of chapter 20 is at an end, and a new context begins with the initial words of chapter 21. This is an erroneous view right, that has allowed the church for centuries to somehow disassociate the Ten Commandments from all other rulings of the law and of the Torah. That is, we have a modern church that says that the Torah and the law is abolished, but at the same moment validates the continuation of the Ten Commandments. Yet what we see is that in reality, the Ten Commandments are plainly and literally, but the first ten laws, even though they are at the same time the grand principles under which all other law will be fenced in. It is much like um, the preamble to our Constitution. The preamble isn't a separate document with a separate thought process apart from the Constitution. Rather, the preamble is but the opening words to the Constitution, and it sets up the basic context and principles by which everything that follows it must be fenced in. Okay, Let's move on now to the next significant point contained in the opening verse. That single opening verse of Exodus 21, and it concerns the word rulings that is most typically found there. If you look from Bible version to Bible version, possibly in place of the word rulings, you might find words like law or ordinances or judgments or rules and statutes, something like that. And all these having roughly the same sense in our modern way of thinking. That is, what is to follow is a written legal code of behavior. A code of 613 laws for the community of Israel that's all that's most often referred to as a bundle, the law. Now, the original Hebrew word that is usually translated law, rule, or judgments is mishpat. Right? That is, putting the original Hebrew word mishpat into verse 1, it reads, and now these are the mishpat you are to present to them them being Israel, of course. So God characterizes all that will follow in verse 1 using the Hebrew term mishpat. Now, even though this civil code is almost universally referred to as the law, the term law as we think of law is not what mishpat means. Far from it. It is the meaning of this word mishpat and another Hebrew word that often accompanies it, tzedek, that we're going to spend some time examining today because mishpat and tzedek contain within them some powerful divine concepts that Christians have not fully understood. This misunderstanding, coupled with the ever-present anti-Jewish bias that has been literally built in to the church practically since its inception has really brought about this persistent negative view of the Old Testament, which wrongly colors our perceptions about how the Torah relates to the covenant of Christ. So before we can better understand the uniquely Hebrew concepts of Mishpat and Sedek, we're first going to have to understand a couple of basic premises of the ancient Hebrew mind because they are almost the opposite of the way modern Gentile Christians think. In fact, if you'll pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you this evening, you're going to have a far greater understanding of the New Testament in general and the book of Romans in particular. Now I'm going to begin by using an admittedly overly simplistic illustration. An often quoted Christian cliché about the mindset of too many modern-day believers is that we're so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. You heard that one before? Okay. That is that some believers are so concerned about what happens once we enter eternity and begin living with God in heaven that our time here on earth just becomes secondary. 
Our physical lives being almost irrelevant. Good deeds and duties to our fellow man are set aside. We're just in this waiting period as compared to what lies ahead. The Old Testament Hebrews, on the other hand, paid little attention to heaven or eternity. At least as it pertained to a place that they might someday exist. Instead, all of their attention, particularly as concerned their relationship with Yehovah, was focused on their earthly lives. All that happened before they died. And there is a very good reason for the ancient Hebrews to have felt that way. It might surprise you to know that in the Old Testament we'll find almost nothing about what happens after someone dies. There is precious little discussion in the Old Testament that addresses even the possibility of an afterlife. One of the questions I'm constantly asked, and I'm sure other Bible teachers get the same question all the time, what happened to the Old Testament people, Hebrew and otherwise, who died since Christ is yet to come? What happened to them? Well, while the subject of life and Uh, rather of death and the afterlife is of supreme interest to Christians, it wasn't nearly so dominant to the Old Testament Hebrews. And that fact has much to do with just how the Hebrews viewed all that God told them on Mount Sinai, Sinai and what we see written down in the Torah. In general, the ancient Hebrew view was that death is a natural end to existence just as birth is the natural beginning. Now, they certainly didn't look forward to death any more than we do, nor did they take it simply matter-of-factly or casually. But they also didn't give much thought as to what happened, if anything, after death. Their main concern as regarded death was that they didn't want to die until they lived out the fullest possible term of a natural lifespan. Their fear had little to do with what happened after their death. Rather, it was to avoid being cut off. Cut off being what the Bible terms as a premature death that might come from sickness or being killed in battle or an accident, being murdered. Or, or, Or even, and more often than not, as a judgment upon them from God. And cut off was also what was to always be the destiny of the wicked. That is, their wickedness was to be rewarded with a shortened life. Conversely, when we hear the biblical phrase, they breathed their last and were gathered unto their fathers, it simply means that that person had lived to a ripe old age, which is really all they really hoped for. But it also indicated, as we've discussed before, that they held on to vestiges of ancestor worship. And that some essence of their being might, in some unidentified way, commune with with their ancestors after they died. So premature death was generally seen as the consequences of the punishment for unrighteous living. That is, disobedience to the law, up to and including downright wickedness. No further consequence for sin beyond physical death was contemplated because, in general, death was seen as the end of existence. Okay. Now, Sheol, to the ancient Hebrew mind, was the place of the dead. Right. Um, it has often been described by pastors and Bible teachers as the Old Testament version of the New Testament term Hades, right, which is usually considered to be hell. Now, from a theological standpoint, it is certainly arguable that technically they might be correct. However, from a standpoint of what the ancient Hebrews actually thought about it, it's incorrect. Sheol, to the ancient Hebrews, was basically the grave. Death in the grave was a mystery for them. And, And while there is the slightest hint that in some abstract way there might be something after death. They had no clue what it was. 
However, the Hebrews, after Babylon, let's say 550 B.C. and forward, did eventually develop some ideas that perhaps some kind of different existence began after death. But here's the thing. It was certainly not a better existence than physical life, than the one they left, the one they had before they died. Whatever fuzzy view they did have about what happened once their lifeless bodies entered Sheol, the graves, these thoughts are kind of scattered throughout the Old Testament in tiny snippets that are very difficult to piece together. But most certainly, there was no concept of living an eternity in the presence of Almighty God. There was no concept of it. There was no hope for it. Not also of going to heaven when we die. That kind of concept did not exist to the Old Testament Hebrew. In fact, the general thought we find in the Old Testament is that Sheol, the grave, permanently separates the dead from Yehovah. Okay? Those separation thoughts are what has led some Christian teachers to claim that Sheol was the Old Testament version of hell a place of punishment for the unrighteous. And I feel certain they're wrong because the Old Testament states that all descend to Sheol, which once again is basically a concept we're all dying, go to the grave. We're all destined once to die. Sheol, therefore, was viewed as the great common denominator for all mankind, wicked or righteous. All men died, their existence ceased, so what mattered was life. Now, This is a very stark contrast to what the entire rest of the ancient world at that time believed. Other than for the Hebrews, virtually every culture ever archaeologically uncovered had some kind of extensive death cult. Okay? We're all fairly aware that the great pyramids of Egypt were built as much as a protective place for the pharaohs to live their afterlife in peace and comfort is anything else. Okay. A fully developed underworld myth, the spirit world of the dead, even belief in reincarnation was standard operating procedure for the entire ancient world, except for the Old Testament Hebrews. What mattered to the Old Testament Hebrew, therefore, was what happened during his lifetime. They believed that life, physical life, was the beginning and apparently the ending of your existence. And now this is the key. It was your only time to serve God. However, by the time of Christ, a lot of Hebrew doctrine and tradition had developed on death and afterlife. Even the concept of a spiritual and bodily resurrection. The term in Hebrew that was used to encompass both life after death and, at times, a new world after Messiah comes, was Olam Haba, the world to come. Now, while we're not going to find much on the subject in the Old Testament scriptures, we will find uh, sub, uh, talking uh, about death and afterlife in books that were removed from the Bible by Protestants. Actually, only a couple of hundred years ago. All right, The books are called the Apocrypha. That's right. There were several other books included in the Bible, but they were removed by the Protestant church at around the same time as our Revolutionary War. All right, and the, the Declaration of Independence. The books of the Apocrypha, you see, span the time from the end of the Old Testament, about 400 B.C., to the beginning of the New. About a 400-year time frame. And as might be expected, we find in those books a lot of disagreement over which of the many influential rabbis had the proper view of death and afterlife. Why so much disagreement? Because the source of these views had very little to do with scripture and far more to do with men's thoughts and philosophies. But even then, 
we must realize that the afterlife still held only the most minor place in the minds and purposes of the Israelites, except in times of extreme persecution, such as under Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century BC and under the Romans before, during, and after Christ's time. Then it became a major issue. The here and now was everything for the Old Testament Hebrews. And even after they had developed an interest and some theology on death and and beyond, it still didn't dominate their thoughts or dictate their lives in general. And what is so important to understand is that the notions of death and afterlife that developed shortly before Christ were generally not biblical. They were based on some newly developed man-made traditions and heavily influenced by Greek thought, which had now become very pervasive in Judaism. Now, based on what I just told you, if you were a Hebrew in the Old Testament Bible times, particularly from the time of Moses onward, how would you have lived your earthly life? A life that, as far as anybody knew, ended at the grave with no real thought of anything beyond that. If you loved God, you'd probably see to it that the 70 or 80 years you were alive revolved around your relationship with Yehovah. And if you were very serious about the lordship of Yehovah, you'd do all you could to be righteous before God, because once you died, you believed that your relationship with Jehovah was permanently ended. That you had no more opportunity to please God, or even communicate with Him. Being righteous and pleasing Jehovah meant being obedient to Him. In fact, that's exactly what we're told in the Ten Commandments. So the ancient Hebrew work diligently to please God in their everyday activities, in every phase of their lives. This was their goal. This was their life's purpose because at death it ended in their minds. Now, contrast that ancient Hebrew mindset with our modern Christian view. I think it's pretty fair to say that perhaps our primary goal today as believers is obtaining eternal security. Okay? That is, that we're assured unequivocally of having an afterlife and that it will be far better than our earthly lives and that it is forever and it will be in the very presence of God. So, Christians tend to focus on the hope of an eternal future with God as a reward for an important decision that we make while we're alive to accept Yeshua as Lord and Savior. On the other hand, ancient Hebrews looked primarily to the present because generally speaking they felt that the present life was all there was. That whatever reward they might receive from Yehovah occurred during their lifetimes based on their daily obedience and decisions, and that the most tangible reward they could receive was to live a full life. Now, think about all that for a minute. Can you see how these two very different views held by Christians versus the Old Testament Hebrews, how these two views on life and death and afterlife make such a great impact on how we each accept our duties to God. Okay? Or even how important or unimportant we view our absolute obedience to God's commands in our daily walk, in the most simple things we do in our lives. It makes an enormous difference on the meaning we attach to God's principles all right, and to his word. These two different views also extend to how Hebrews and Christians each think 
of salvation. Okay? Even today, when you say salvation to an observant Jew, it means something totally different than what we're thinking salvation is. Again, not how you get it, but what it is. Okay? While it's not unanimous, in general, the Hebrews thought and continue to think of salvation as an accomplished fact by means of their forefathers. That is, that God in all of his grace and mercy has established the set-apart group, the saved people, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore if by God's grace you were fortunate enough to be a member of that set-apart group, which was the Hebrews, the Israelites, you were saved. Saved from what? From not being a pagan. That's it. 600 years after the covenant of Abraham first established the set-apart people um, came the advent of a new covenant from Jehovah, the covenant of Moses. Upon the covenant of Moses, one's intent to be obedient to that new covenant, what is commonly called the law, was what kept you in that already established set-apart group. It kept you saved. It kept you from being a pagan. Okay, So, for the ancient Hebrew, being saved happened by first being a member of the group whom God set aside to be, to be his own special people, the Israelites, the Hebrews. And then you remained in the group by means of your dedication to obeying the law. Being born a Hebrew and being part of the Mosaic Covenant through obedience to the law was your reward, so to speak. That is, simply being part of God's people, being part of Israel, was what salvation consisted of. Nothing more. The thought of any additional future reward after your life was over was simply not part of salvation by the thinking of those who wrote the Old Testament scriptures. Again, contrast this with the Christian viewpoint that salvation is mostly about what happens after we die. For us, salvation has to do with forgiveness of sins in the present life, obtaining a righteousness based on what someone else did. Jesus Christ, of course, we're talking about. And as a result of that, we receive an afterlife for all eternity with Jehovah. Our reward takes place primarily in the future, in a spirit world, after we die. Now, with all of that as a background, perhaps we can now better understand the mind of the Israelites, those ancient Hebrews and all their descendants and their fervent desire to follow the 613 laws of Torah in their short lifespan on earth. The type of righteousness we Christians seek is mainly to get us into heaven. The type of righteousness Hebrews hoped for, in some ways, was a day-to-day earthly issue, with the primary reward simply knowing that you were obedient and therefore pleasing to God and thus remaining part of his set-apart people. Now, part of my purpose and goal in this Torah class is to reveal the word of Jehovah to you within the mindset and the culture of the people God gave it to in the first place. Okay, Outside of that mindset, we get some pretty distorted ideas of what was actually going on in the Bible, all right, and what God intended for us to learn. So this overall view of life, death, and generally the absence of any afterlife, and if there was an afterlife, it was apart from God, all right, greatly affected the Old Testament, I said Old Testament, Hebrew concept, 
of exactly what God meant by the foundational words. Now you see as we come full circle here now, Mishpat and Sedek, which in turn affected how they viewed what the law was, what it was for, how they were to relate to it. And it was very different than how Christians have been taught to see it. The Hebrews in general did not have a works righteousness approach to their faith. Rather, it was an obedience righteousness approach, stemming from a recognition that it was Jehovah's grace in the first place that made the Hebrews his chosen people, and that it was any individual Hebrew's greatest fortune to be a Hebrew. That is a far cry from the rather mean-spirited accusation of legalism that the church constantly hurls at the biblical Hebrews. Oh yes, tradition, man-made doctrine, had really muddied the waters by the time of Christ. And as a result, most Hebrews rejected and continue to this day to reject both their need of true salvation and the one who was sent to save them. Okay. But it wasn't because they thought that they, that their own form of righteousness earned them eternal life with God. They never thought such a thing. They didn't even think eternal life was possible with God. I mean, do you realize, you go, you talk, go talk to an average Jew and ask him how he'd feel about living in heaven with God and he'd think you're out of your mind. Alright, what are you talking about? How, how could God allow a human being near him? They have no thought of this. And by the way, Man-made doctrines have also muddied our Christian waters. So let's not feel too high and mighty. All right? And kind of scoff at those ancient Hebrews. All right? As primitive and ignorant. Now let's see if we can begin to determine what now these two critical and central words, Mishpat and Sedek, mean. Now remember, let's go back now to the beginning. Mishpat is how God characterizes the body of so-called laws that he was about to give to Moses in Israel, beginning in Exodus 21. All right. These are the Mishpat you are to give to them. These are the rulings. Most of the time, Mishpat is translated in our Bibles as judgment or rules. And Sedek as righteous or righteousness. So in our Old Testaments, most of the time when we see the English word judgment or rule or justice, the Hebrew word that's being translated is one form or another of the Hebrew word mishpat. When we see righteous or righteousness in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word being translated is always almost always a form of the Hebrew word, Sedek. Now, we could probably spend this entire session and another one just wrestling among ourselves as to what the word righteousness in English means. All right? That is, just how might we each define that word? What's righteousness? Okay. Well, so is to avoid all that. Let me ask you to do what they do in the court of law when they say, I'd like you to stipulate to this. Don't argue with me about it. All right, just, I'm going to tell you this is the premise I'm going on, and for the moment, just accept it. All right. That in the modern church environment, Sedek has come to generally indicate piety, holiness, perhaps even a form of godliness. Okay? That's the meaning that I'm going to say that's generally how the church takes that word, righteousness. These are all very spiritual terms, very spirit-oriented, as opposed to, say, soulish or a condition of our flesh. And this is because we Christians see our spirit lives as somewhat separate from and more important and perhaps even more dominant 
than our physical lives. Now think back to what we just learned about the ancient Hebrew mindset. Since they were more concerned with their physical life, the here and now, believing there was nothing discernible beyond the grave, they were more concerned with living out their faith in God in everyday activities and dealings with their fellow man. So rather, for them, rather than see righteousness as this kind of lofty spiritual goal, as we Christians tend to, they saw righteousness as an everyday, practical, down-to-earth matter of personal behavior and decision-making. Okay? And therefore, to the ancient Hebrews, a man's righteousness, his sedek, revolved all around him, being fair and equitable in his dealings with others, with his family, with his friends, his business associates, his customers, even his enemies. So righteousness to the typical Old Testament Hebrew meant being fair and just to his fellow man in general. And where did they learn what the standard for being fair and just was? The law, the Torah, the covenant of Moses. The intent, their intent, was to be fair and just with their fellow man, according to what Yehovah wrote down through Moses in the Torah. So while Christians view a man's righteousness as more this kind of intangible, internal, spiritual condition, the Old Testament Hebrew saw his righteousness as all wrapped up in his fair and just behavior and attitude. Now, the Christian wants to see wants God to see our holy internal condition created as a result of our union with Messiah as righteous, as righteousness. The Hebrew wants God to see his fair and just external activities, his deeds, as his righteousness. So which of these seemingly opposite viewpoints is the proper view of biblical, God-defined righteousness, Sedek. Were the Hebrews right? That righteousness is embodied within our fair dealings with our fellow man? Or were they wrong? And we Christians have it correct, as righteousness being only a condition of our spirits, right, produced by Christ. Well, actually, what I think we're going to discover is that both are right and both are wrong. Okay, because God has a definition of righteousness. Hear me on this. God has a definition of righteousness that is not man-based. It is not man-focused. It's God-focused. So generally speaking, neither the Hebrew nor the Christian faith can claim that they fully represent God's viewpoint of righteousness yet we each do exhibit some of its elements. Let's pause our discussion of Sedek momentarily and turn our attention back again to that Hebrew term mishpat. Because what is almost universally termed the law by both Hebrews and Gentiles, Yehovah calls his mishpat. So what, is exact, what exactly is that supposed to mean to us? Now scholars have wrestled with that for eons. Martin Luther was fascinated with this Hebrew concept, mishpat. And quite interestingly, Luther often translated it to mean to keep God's word. At other times, he translated mishpat as to do justly. Still, that's not fully satisfying and it doesn't fully encompass the word's meaning, but we're getting close. Okay, So as an example or an illustration, let's take a look at an incident with Abraham that I think validates and perhaps expands Luther's definition of mishpat, which is getting us closer to the truth. Listen to Genesis 18, 19. For I, Yehovah, 
have made myself known to him, Abraham, so that he will give orders to his children and to his household after him to keep the way of Jehovah, to do what is right and just, so that Jehovah may bring about for Abraham what it has, what he has promised him he will do. Let's focus on that phrase, to do what is right and just. In Hebrew, this reads, guess what? To do Sedek and Mishpat. Aha! Here we have a terrific case of scripture defining scripture. Because we're told in the half dozen words, just before the phrase, to do Sedek and Mishpat, exactly what that means. It means to keep the way of Jehovah. So by doing Sedek and Mishpat, we're doing what is right and just, one is keeping the way of Jehovah, at least it is in this instance with Abraham. And this fits pretty well with how Luther saw it. Now let's summarize to see what we know so far. Sedek and Mishpat at least partially involve keeping the way of Jehovah. The way of Jehovah is taught to man in detail in the covenant of Moses. The way of Jehovah is characterized as being just and right, as in righteous. Yet the way of Jehovah is in no way characterized as harsh, rigid, merciless, self-justifying law code. Nor is it negative or punitive. Now let's look at this in another context. We were to start just thumbing through the prophets, like Isaiah and Micah, we're going to see the word judgment used a lot, aren't we? Okay, Around 50 times, as a matter of fact, in those two books alone, depending on your version. Now, I don't think I'm climbing too far out into a limb to say that the word judgment carries a pretty harsh sense to it in our way of thinking. That is, wrath or punishment divine destruction might be pretty good synonyms for the biblical term judgment. Now, while that certainly is not a unanimous church view, it is the generally accepted train of thought due to the frequent occurrence of the word judgment in the Hebrew scriptures. So, we figure the Old Testament must be all about God's wrath, while the New Testament is all about God's grace and mercy. Well, 600 years ago, when the Bible was first translated into English, even before, by the way, the King James Version, the word judgment was a rather benign and neutral term. That is, it wasn't particularly negative nor positive. It didn't indicate something harsh or severe. It was meant in those days... More in the sense that if you asked, someone asked you your opinion on something and you responded, well, in my judgment, I think thus and so. Okay. By the phrase, in my judgment, I think thus and so, you certainly didn't mean, well, in my wrath, I think thus and so. Do you? That isn't what you mean by that. You just meant that you had come to some kind of a conclusion, a ruling, a decision. That's all. So most of the harshness that we think we see in the Old Testament, which comes primarily from the frequent use of the word judgment, is actually a misunderstanding of the whole sense of the word judgment. Which, guess what? The word being translated is mishpat. The truth is that most of the time when the word judgment, mishpat, occurs in the Bible, it is actually meant to have a very joyous, redemptive tone to it. Almost the complete opposite of how we typically have been taught to see those passages on judgment. Now, we've already seen that ancient Hebrews saw man's righteousness, Sedek, as meaning fair dealing in God's eyes, while we Christians take it to mean that we have a spirit of holiness in us. Okay? But please, now, catch this. 
both the Hebrew and the Christian view of those ideas of righteousness are all about our righteousness, my righteousness, your righteousness, man's righteousness. What we need to do now is try and determine what God's righteousness is. And what we find is that what that we need to take God's righteousness as above all being all about salvation. That is, in the Bible, when righteousness, Sedek, is of God, it is always referring to his saving will, his saving purposes. All that happens at his direction to create a set-apart people for himself, a saved people, a sanctified people, a redeemed people. But since that definition of righteousness concerns only God's righteousness, not man's righteousness, then what is righteousness when it is referring to men from God's viewpoint? Men are the objects of God's saving will, aren't we? God's saving will is intended for us. It's directed at us. So righteousness, so a righteous man is one in whom God's saving will is being carried out. God's saving will is happening in that man, just as God intended. We would say today, since Christ, that a righteous man is therefore a believer. One who has accepted God's saving will for his own life. Well, if in God's eyes, righteousness, Sedek, is all about salvation and his saving will, then what's Mishpat all about? And why are these two words, Mishpat and Sedek, usually so connected in Scripture. You almost always find them together. Okay. Mishpat is the detailed standard of what is right and good, according to God, under his system of justice. So if a man is doing God's mishpat, it means that man is behaving according to the standard of a right set down and ordained by the Lord that's part of his saving will. You remember how Luther translated Mishpat? To keep God's word? He was really on to something. The only difference I would have with this is that I would add the word saving to Luther's definition. That is, Mishpat generally means to keep God's saving word. Let's see if I can illustrate that just a little bit. Let's take a look at a passage in Isaiah, which is clearly recognized as being about salvation, and we'll apply it to what we learned. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to quote it to you. Isaiah 1.27 says, listen closely, please. Zion will be redeemed with judgment and those who repent by righteousness. Many versions will say redeemed by, ju by justice. But whether the word used is justice or judgment, this passage, it is agreed by Hebrew and Christian scholar alike for centuries, is all about salvation. Okay? It's not about punishment. Zion will be redeemed with judgment does not mean Zion will be redeemed with wrath. Yehovah is not going to redeem the people of Zion by visiting wrath upon them. Rather, he is going to exercise his mishpat, his saving will upon them. All right? And the Lord's saving will, his idea of justice, his mishpat, is that mankind will not pay the due penalty for our sins against him. That's his justice. Rather, God himself, in the purpose of Jesus Christ, is going to pay the price for mankind's sin. That's God's mishpat. 
That's God's form of justice. That's God's saving will. Now catch this. The picture that is forming shows us that God's mishpat, his righteous justice, is all about his saving will all the way from from, uh, uh, Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. And long ago, the church developed a term, a term we're all familiar with, to be used when referring to God's saving will. That's revealed in his saving word. And that term is the gospel. That's what we mean by that. Okay, Let me say that again. The term gospel is what the church has chosen as a title for everything that's about God's salvation. But gospel as we commonly use it today is really just a Christian soundbite. Because if I asked ten of you what that word meant, I'd get ten different answers, even though it might all revolve around Christ to some degree. The scholarly definition of the term gospel is that it is the revealed word of God's plan of salvation for all mankind. Go to a theological dictionary, that's pretty much what you'll find. I think we can all agree with that. What this all comes down to is that mishpat, when used in the context of the Lord's mishpat, like in the Torah, is nothing more nor less than the Old Testament term for the gospel. Let's begin to pull this together by looking at Isaiah 42, 1-4. Again, don't turn to it, I'll, I'll read it to you. Now this is an obvious prophetic reference to Yeshua. Depending on your version, it will say something like this. Here is my servant whom I support, my chosen one in whom I take pleasure. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the Gentiles or to the nations. He will not cry or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not snap off a broken reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. He will bring forth justice according to truth. He will not weaken or be crushed until he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his Torah. Okay, let's read that again. And each time that I encounter the words justice or judgment, which is in the original Hebrew here, mishpat, I'm simply going to substitute the word gospel. A word familiar to us, a word which paints a picture that we all pretty well understand. Now watch what happens when I read the same statement by doing that. Here is my servant whom I support, my chosen one in whom I take pleasure. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He will not cry nor shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not snap off a broken reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. He will bring forth the gospel of truth. He will not weaken or be crushed until he has established the gospel on all the earth. And the coastlands wait for his Torah. Pretty astounding, isn't it? See, the covenant of Moses, what Hebrews and Christians alike have so long mischaracterized as the law, is simply the ongoing process of the gospel. We tend to think, because frankly that's what pastors and priests have told us to think, of the gospel as beginning with the advent of Christ. In fact... It was not first enunciated with the birth of Christ. It wasn't really even first enunciated with the covenant of Moses, but actually with the covenant of Abraham. And we're reminded of that fact, interestingly enough, in the New Testament. In Galatians 3, 6-8, listen to the Apostle Paul here. This is Paul speaking. He says, you know, it was the same with Abraham. He trusted in God and was faithful to him, and that was credited to his account 
as righteousness. Be assured then that it is those who live by trusting and being faithful who are really children of Abraham. Also the Tanakh, the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would consider the Gentiles righteous when they lived by trusting and being faithful, told the good news, the gospel, to Abraham in advance by saying, in connection with you all the goyim, all the Gentiles will be blessed. Isn't that what we just read in Isaiah? So we need to dispel this tragically false non-biblical doctrine from our minds that the gospel began when Yeshua was born. In fact, it was first revealed to man, specifically to Abraham, 2,000 years before Yeshua was born. From here on out, I hope and pray that when you think about the law, the Torah, that you will think of it instead as the original telling of the gospel. The Old Testament is the gospel, Act 1. The New Testament is the gospel, Act 2. Revelation, the second coming of Yeshua in in all history, is the finale of the gospel, Gospel, Act 3. Oh, what a different light that puts on what we're going to be reading next week, in the months ahead, in the remainder of the Torah, and how guilty we are presuming to characterize God's Torah as this legalistic, harsh, unfair, unattainable code of works righteousness and self-justification that's been abolished and replaced with grace. Shame. But our study today also points out the awesome and mysterious reality of duality that we find all throughout Scripture that for every instruction from God, Old Testament or New, there is an earthly physical manifestation of it on the one hand and there's a parallel spiritual heavenly manifestation of it on the other. The ancient Hebrews erred by seeing the revelation of the gospel given in the covenant of Abraham and then Moses as totally earthbound, physical, and therefore all wrapped up in ritual and behavior and being purely temporal. We modern Christians err by seeing the gospel as almost exclusively heavenly, spiritual with little or no requirement for our obedience to Yehovah or obedience to his system of justice, his mishpat. The gospel is not one or the other, it's both. But it's also not half and half. Christ was our perfect example of exactly what the gospel is. He was 100% man and 100% God. The gospel is 100% physical and 100% spiritual. We are to approach our time of life on earth with an extreme sense of fairness, an equitable justice towards our fellow man and a determination to obey God as did the Hebrews. But with the equally extreme sense of unwarranted and imputed righteousness given to us by Christ and of being guided by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and of the hope of eternal life with God. Just as is our Christian understanding. We are not to set aside this life as being unimportant. It is important. Yet this relatively short present life does indeed precede our future spiritual eternal life. Okay? We are to see our physical lives as a training ground. Okay? That time whereby we learn and practice God's perfect never-changing, never-ending way of right and justice of Sedek and Mishpat, as told us in his Torah. Because you know what? We're going to be administering that very same way of right and justice for all eternity. Even administering it to the angels. The bottom line to our study today is this. Next week, 
when we read Exodus 21, verse 1, it could and probably should legitimately read, this is the gospel you are to present to them. Okay, that'll do it for tonight.